It's great to be here this morning. I have been here before, but it's been a few years. Last time I was here, there was no air conditioning. In fact, I've preached here a number of times with no air conditioning, two, including two weekends over Fourth of July with no air conditioning. So I'm very grateful for the renewal of the gospel in this church, and I'm also very grateful for the renewal of this building uh, where I don't have to have a fan blowing on me uh, up here just to hopefully not pass out. So it's great to be here. Uh, not only have I been here a number of times uh, on a Sunday morning, I was just here a month ago for the Resound project that some of you maybe have heard Jason talk about. Uh, my wife and I were here for that, and that was a great privilege, and so happy to be back just here a few weeks later. Glad to be able to be in worship with you this morning. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is from Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 happens in the first century, and it happens with the eyewitness account of Luke. So the four Gospels essentially are biographical, biographical accounts of Jesus' life. And Luke chapter 10 is the biographical account of Jesus' life from Luke, who tells us it's an orderly account. He speaks about like, like that at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, and it's at this point where, where Jesus' ministry is really starting to gain traction. And Luke chapter 10, the beginning, in fact, Luke, I mean Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9 is a very busy chapter. Luke chapter 9 begins with Jesus sending out the 12 apostles, the professionals, if you will. Also in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is transfigured. He feeds the 5,000. Peter confesses that Christ is the Lord, along with a few other things. So a lot in Luke chapter 9, and, re and the reason that that's relevant for us today is we always need to be able to put what we're looking at into context, especially when the first verse of our passage today says, after this. Well, after what? Well, after Luke chapter 9, when Jesus sent out the 12 apostles, he was transfigured, Peter confessed to Christ, he fed to 5,000, and all these other things. Now, Luke tells us that this happened, and what this is, is Jesus commissioning 72 people to go and to spread the gospel. So if Luke chapter 9 was Jesus, the beginning, sending out the apostles, whom I already referred to as the professionals, say that tongue-in-cheek, Luke chapter 10 is Jesus commissioning and sending out the amateurs in order for gospel mission. So we begin in Luke chapter 10, we're going to read verses 1 through 12, and then we'll pick up and read 17 through 20. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town 
and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let me pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth will set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Recent study of Gordon Conwell Seminary, which is in Boston, said there's approximately 2.5 billion Christians throughout the world. If that's surprising to you, and that's an estimate for 2023, the same study estimates that there could be upwards of 3.5 billion by 2050. Might be hard for us to recognize this, not only living in New York City, but living in the West. Andrew Walls, who is a missiologist, talks about the gravitational pull of Christianity away from the West, a gravitational pull of Christianity away from prosperity. Actually, that's a historic reality of the movement of the gospel. Side note, Christianity is the only of the major world religions who has a constantly moving center of its adherence. All other major world religion, religions to this day still are primarily centered where they were started. But Christianity according to Andrew Walls, has always been on the move, and there's 2.6 billion in the world today, maybe 3.5 by 2050. Most revival we see right now throughout the world is taking places in South America, Africa, and even China. But it's hard for us to imagine, those of you that live here in New York City and hard for Westerners to imagine, but it wasn't always like this. Christianity in the first century was small. There's one scholar named Larry Hurtado who talks a lot and spent a lot of time studying first century Christianity. His dissertation was essentially entitled, Why Did Anyone in the World Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Why did anyone in the world become a Christian in the first three centuries? It was crazy that here comes this man proclaiming to be a Messiah, revealing himself to a small remnant of Israel who were believers, sending them to minister to the Gentiles, calling 12 apostles, sending them into mission. And then one day there was a major breakthrough in Jerusalem where 5,000 people became a Christian. And today, here we are, sitting in this church, believing these same things started in seedling form. You know how these things work. Stuff goes viral, right? I was just thinking recently of Shake Shack. 
as I was in the Salt Lake City airport skiing this spring, I thought, oh, Shake Shack. Well, many of you know, Danny Meyer started Shake Shack in 2001 in Madison Square Park, and it was a hot dog stand. Now, you can eat Shake Shack in the Salt Lake City airport. A small beginning blossomed into something much greater. Giving you context before we get into the specificities of Luke 10 this morning, Larry Hurtado, this same scholar that I mentioned, expert in first century Christianity, summarizes it like this. About AD 30, a new religious movement appeared, which by the way, Christians in AD 30 were referred to as atheists because they did not worship the Roman cultural gods of the day. They did not consider, others did not consider them to be pietistic. So they were atheists. About AD 30, a new religious movement appeared, initially comprised of circles of Jews in Roman Judea in which Jesus was central to its beliefs and practices. At some point thereafter, but certainly in the latter part of the first century AD, adherents to this movement began to be referred to as Christians, initially by outsiders, and by the second century, the movement became known as Christianity. During his early life, Jesus had become master to the group of followers, and likely they saw him as the Messiah. Shortly after Jesus' state execution by crucifixion, there erupted among his followers the powerful conviction that God had raised him from death and exalted him to heavenly glory, thereby designating Jesus as the Messiah and Lord. This conviction produced new and even greater fervency among the circles of Jesus' followers. And within a couple of years, at most, the movement had spread to other sites as well. Within a decade or two, it had spread to a number of cities in present-day Turkey and Greece, like Ephesus. Also Rome, and likely to other places such as Egypt. Initially made up of Jews, the movement also quickly expanded trans-ethnically to include non-Jews, Gentile converts, that is, former pagans. It's amazing that the movement of the gospel took root in the way that it did, and it continues to resound to this day. Well, it's not something that we're simply called to marvel at from a distance. The main thing I want us to see from Luke chapter 10 this morning is that we are called to participate in this movement of the gospel. We are called first and foremost to receive the gospel. The gospel is a ministry to us, and then the gospel is a ministry through us. And of course, you know the gospel is not the dispensing of good advice. The gospel is the proclamation of good news, and we're called to receive the good news, and then we're called to join with a movement of the gospel. Another way of saying the big idea from Luke chapter 10 is this, God has sent his people on mission. God has sent his people on mission to do what Peter says in his first epistle, to proclaim his excellencies to proclaim the light to those who walk 
and darkness. I love hearing the story of a good friend of ours in Knoxville who actually grew up in Connecticut, went to school in Pennsylvania, and lived in New York, became a Christian through the ministry of Redeemer in her young adult life, and reflects back on her life in high school as being lost and wondering, looking for purpose, meaning, and hope, becomes a Christian as a young adult and then looks back and realizes that she actually had friends in high school in Connecticut that were Christians. They just never told her about the gospel. And she laments, not in a judgmental way to them, but laments to them, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me about the gospel? Well, Luke chapter 10 is telling us, if you're a Christian, and I realize not everyone is, but Luke chapter 10 is telling Christians to tell others about the good news of Christ. And I really want us to see three elements of the mission and the ministry that Christ has called his people to in Luke chapter 10 are three characteristics of this mission or ministry. The first is that it is a commissioned mission or ministry. It's a strategic mission and that it is a joyful mission or endeavor. So if we're going to join with the work of Christ, we must see that this mission that he has called us to is commissioned, it's strategic, and it's joyful. The commissioned aspect is pretty obvious from the beginning if you look in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed. It was the Lord who appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place he himself was about to go. We read about this later at the end of the Gospels, for example, in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus proclaims that he has all authority under heaven and on earth, and through his authority, he gives his followers authority. He sends them, he commissions them as ambassadors, as delegates, as agents, as representatives of the good news in order to proclaim his excellencies. Sometimes we can get confused about this. You can get confused about this even in well-meaning ways when you do things like refer to this church as Jason's church. This is not Jason's church, and I can promise you, being a friend of Jason and a fellow minister, he does not want this to be referred to as his church. This is Jesus's church commissioned and appointed by him to minister the gospel, and he uses people like Jason and Chris and you and you and even guest people like me to fulfill the appointed mission that he's called us to. The psalmist understands this in Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. I remind our staff of this all the time as I seek to remind myself of this as a minister. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Francis Schaeffer, former pastor, writer, and really great cultural apologist and prophet, 
made a sharp distinction in his ministry. He distinguished between doing the Lord's work and praying that the Lord would work. He said, we're not called to do the Lord's work. Rather, we're called to pray that the Lord would do his work because it's his work, it's not ours, because it's appointed by him under his authority. But part of this commissioned ministry is also recognizing that there's an amazing opportunity. Do you see that in verse 2? And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into his harvest. I'm sure many of you have seen a vineyard before. They're really beautiful. Get the opportunity about once a year these days to travel to Chile. I've been to California as well. I've seen other vineyards in other places in the country like Missouri or Tennessee, a little less fantastic than California or Chile. But vineyards are gorgeous. It's really amazing when you get to go to a vineyard, when you see the grapes on the vine. Let me ask you a question. What happens if the grapes are not harvested? They die. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, we must follow the Lord of the harvest in doing what, first and foremost? Simply praying. I want to talk about clear application in the first point. What are we called to do as we recognize that this ministry or mission that Christ has called his people to is appointed and commissioned by him? Simply pray. Pray that the Lord will work. And before we move on to this next point of ministry being strategic, we also must realize that this ministry that Christ calls us to is urgent. Look at verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. There's a certain urgency to what Christ is doing here. He says, go into these towns, proclaim the truth, do not delay, do not hurry, heal the sick, preach the kingdom, call people to repentance, and do so in such a way where you are urgent and people long to receive this with urgency. Some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's great work, The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters is a tactical manual of ministry and mission, but not from a gospel perspective, but from the other side. It's a tactical manual for how the enemy himself, Screwtape, Wormwood, and Satan have a tactic to be able to get people to not believe the gospel. At one point, a conversation happens between the master and three students, and they're coming up with particular tactics on what it might look like to get people to not believe the gospel. And one demon, the first demon, says, I have an idea. Let's tell people there is no heaven. The master says, that idea will not work. It's very clear from the scriptures. It's clear in people's hearts and minds. It's clear that there is a heaven. I don't think that tactic will work. And then another demon says, 
I have an idea. Let's tell people there's no hell. Well, the master responds pretty quickly and says, well, that definitely won't work. Jesus actually talks more about hell than he does heaven. And if they believe there's a heaven, then of course they believe there's a hell. So that's not going to work either. And a third one says, I have an idea. Let's concede that there's a heaven and that there's a hell, but let's tell people there's no hurry. And the master says, that'll work. Well, Jesus, in this commissioned ministry, wants us to understand that it's sent by him, that the opportunity is plentiful, and we need to operate with a certain urgency to be able to do this. But with this urgency, Jesus also, in a second characteristic here, says that ministry is going to be strategic. And this is a pretty interesting reality here, I think, in this story, especially with the specific detail that Jesus gives. And I won't enumerate all of it, but just look at verse 4. He gives very practical instructions here, almost as if Jesus is a professor. And he's like giving him a syllabus. And he says, here's what the syllabus says. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, greet no one on the road. Or maybe he's like a coach. I tend to think in sports analogies a lot. I imagine Jesus in this metaphorical locker room where he's got like the you know, dry erase marker on the whiteboard, and he's saying, all right, here's the plan. And he's kind of drawn up, I'm sure, pretty great diagrams. I don't know what kind of artist or handwriting he had. But he says, all right, here's the deal. Do this, don't do that. Whatever house you enter, first say peace. And if a son is peace is there, great. And if that happens, great, it'll return to you. And then remain in that same house. And he gives them this you know, interesting detail. Eat and drink whatever they provide for you. For a laborer deserves his wages. And if they receive what you're saying, that's great. But if they don't receive what you're saying, then go and do this. It's very, very strategic. It's very, very intentional. And I think this is important for us to hear. Because there's no doubt ministry needs to be organic. Ministry needs to be relational. Ministry needs to be lived out of real authenticity in our lives. However, I'm a fearful that many of us fall into this organic fallacy, which is just, if I am, people will see. Well, that's true sometimes, but other times we need to be intentional. We need to have a plan. We need to move forward with some level of detail and specificity, not in an impersonal way, not in a disrespectful way, in a comprehensible, compelling way, but with intentionality. We need a game plan. Central, one of the reasons that God has used this church in such a powerful way is that there has been strategic and missional vision to everything that is done. And God is blessing that and using that. Speaking of sports analogies, one of my favorite strategic or intentional stories happened in an NBA game back in the late 80s or early 90s. It involved Larry Bird. I think without debate, one of the top five players ever to play the game. A lot of people debating NBA greats these days, and I don't follow all the line of reasoning. I don't know if there's any NBA fans out there or not, but Larry Bird, one of the greatest players and one of the greatest trash talkers, interestingly enough. You might not know that about Larry Bird. Casey Jones was the coach of the Celtics, longtime coach that coached Larry Bird, and Casey Jones recounts a time they were playing at Seattle, And there was just a few seconds left 
in the game, the Celtics were down by two, and they huddled up to be able to come together for the last play of the game. And he said Larry Bird, like he was prone to do, quickly took over the huddle and started to tell the team what was going to happen. And Casey Jones said, I guess I'll just let him do it at that point. Well, on Seattle was one of Larry Bird's great rivals, Xavier McDaniel. Xavier McDaniel, as they were in this huddle towards the end of the game, starts to sneak himself over to the Celtics huddle to listen to what the last play might be in order to defend it. And Casey Jones says that Larry Bird picks his head up out of the huddle, looks straight at Xavier McDaniel and says, here's what's about to happen. I'm going to get the ball. I'm going to take two dribbles to the left. I'm going to step back behind the three-point line. I'm going to stick it, and the game's going to be over. And he did exactly that. (laughs) It's important to have a plan. It's important to be intentional in the midst of what God has called us to. God has called us not to success, but God has called us to faithfulness. But in order to be faithful, I think it's important for us to see the elements in this story, including that he called them out two by two. You know, clearly part of God's strategy for his mission and gospel going forward is that you don't go alone. Of course, there's going to be times you're alone, you're in intriguing conversation, you're in a maybe isolated relationship, but the most compelling thing to people is a community of other people who have committed their lives to Christ by God's grace, and they make the gospel plausible. Leslie Newbigin talks about the, thing, the hermeneutic of the gospel that non-believers need the most is to see a community of believers manifesting the goodness of the gospel in a way where skeptics and seekers and anyone else outside the boundary of Christianity see the goodness of the gospel lived out in community, and they want it to be true. There's so many different defeaters of the gospel, which we don't have time to get into today, but it's extremely compelling for a community of believers who are strategically, intentionally, respectfully manifesting and living out the gospel in a humble, loving way to people that don't know Christ. So gospel ministry is commissioned, it's strategic, and then the last point that I want us to see, and it's in verses 17 through 20, gospel ministry is to be joyful. Now, I think this is the particularly unique and distinct thing about this narrative. You could look at other accounts in the gospels and find the other two points that have been made this morning. It's clear throughout the gospels that the ministry is commissioned and sent by Jesus. It's not our own idea. You can see throughout the gospels that there was very thoughtful, intentional, prayerful, endeavors for the movement of the gospel. But something that is particularly unique to this narrative is what we see in verses 17 through 20, and it's actually surprising. In some ways, you might even say it's paradoxical. I'll paraphrase it. They come back after doing the strategic commissioned ministry, and they report back to Jesus, and they're all huddled up, is what I imagined. And they start to give accounts for what has happened. Jesus, it was amazing You should have seen it. We went with your authority. We healed the sick. We proclaimed the gospel, and people actually received it. People were healed. 
And Jesus affirms them and says, yes, that's amazing. And then he goes on to say, in fact, I even saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. I mean, you want to talk about like a good ministry report. And this is pretty fantastic, right? You want to talk about doing a mission moment? What if Jesus stood up and said, I saw Satan. Or what if one of you stood up? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I mean, that's pretty amazing. But then what's more amazing is what Jesus turns and says. However, do not rejoice in this. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Do not rejoice ultimately in the ministry that you have been called to. Do not rejoice ultimately in what God has called you to do in other people's lives, which is super important. But fundamentally, rejoice in the fact that you have been the recipient of the gospel and grace. Daryl Bach, a New Testament commentator, says, Jesus reminds them that their greatest blessing is not in their power, but in their position. Their greatest blessing is not in their power, but it is in their position. You see, the great danger for any Christian, especially in a city like New York, where Christianity is so marginalized, where it really is hard apart from, you know, worship like this in the morning to find true Christian community. And you really do long for other people to experience the freedom of the gospel. There's a great hazard, and that is that you forget the gospel yourself. It's very easy to serve God and not experience God. It's very easy to serve other people and not eat what we serve. This is an epidemic in the restaurant industry that has manifested in a million ways, but one that I was intrigued about recently, Noma, which is historically over the last at least 10 years, if not more, in Copenhagen, has been known as the best restaurant in the world. It's closing. Why? Simply stated, they said it was unsustainable unsustainable from a human standpoint to continue to produce that level of quality day in and day out for other people at the neglect of their own sanity and souls. And if any of you have ever been in or are in the restaurant industry, my guess is you can testify to that as well. Well, this is true about ministry. Tim Keller said it well like this, perhaps the greatest dilemma of a pastor or any Christian for that matter is the danger of hypocrisy. By this I mean, unlike other professionals or other people, we as Christians and ministers are expected to proclaim God's goodness, to provide encouragement at all times. We are always pointing other people to God in one way or another in order to show them that his worth and beauty That's the essence of our lives and ministry, but seldom will our hearts be in a condition to say such a thing with complete honesty and integrity since our own hearts 
are often in need of encouragement, gospel-centeredness, and genuine gladness. Thus, we have two choices. We either have to guard our hearts continually in order to personally experience the gospel, or we live the life of a hypocrite where our hearts are bifurcated from the gospel, even as we seek to tell others about it. Mother Teresa, in her autobiography, said this, I am told God loves me, yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. It's sad. In juxtaposition, Charles Spurgeon said, I love to preach the gospel of which I feel the sweetness in my own soul. I love to preach the gospel in which I feel the sweetness in my own soul. In conclusion, I'll tell you a story. The thing that will make this calling of the gospel not only most effective, but most enjoyable, is for you to truly again and again, and maybe for some of you this morning, in a pretty deep sense of renewal, experience God's delight and love for your own heart and soul because it's the most compelling thing for us to experience the gospel and rub off on others. In 2004, you too was performing on Saturday Night Live, which they've done a number of times before. It's customary for a visiting band to play two songs on the set during that time. Sometimes, depending on how time works out and, you know, everything's not perfectly scripted, there might be a little more time for another song. And on this particular night, there was a little more time for another song where the cameras continue to be able to film after typically the end of the show is over. And so you 2 is playing the song I Will Follow as their third song of the night. And it's amazing. And Bono's doing his thing, and that's amazing. The crowd is in a fury, and that's amazing. You can only imagine what it would have liked to have been there. And then the cast of Saturday Night Live, kind of old school type people from 2004, Maya Rudolph, Amy Poehler, and the like, start to come out as the credits are coming on, and they start to dance with you too as they continue to just crush I Will Follow. And at one point, you see on film, though it's hard to find it these days, you can search to see if you can come up with it. Bono reaches over and grabs Amy Poehler by the neck in a hug. And he's still singing. And he gets to the part in the song where he's doing that, I will, I will, I will follow. And Amy Poehler is bawling, crying. I mean, is there a more cynical city in the world? Is there a more cynical place in this city than the cast of Saturday Night Live? Is there a people that need to experience the love and the delight of what the gospel brings more than people like Amy Poehler? And there Bono is, as a Christian, embracing her with delight melting her heart by doing what? The same thing God does. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let your hands not grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. 
He will quiet you with His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Do not rejoice simply in the fact that God has called you to proclaim the gospel to other people. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glory of your truth. We thank you for the glory of your gospel. We pray that you would help us, maybe for the first time, to experience that kind of love and delight that is spoken of in this passage. I pray for others who have ultimately experienced that once before, but are in a need of renewal. I pray that this morning would be an opportunity for renewal of the gospel, that there would be a new delight that our names, that their name is written in the book of life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.